Hello and welcome to Attention to Detail, the podcast for D's fans, by D's fans as we hold on for dear life aboard the rollercoaster ride that is barracking for the Melbourne Football Club. My name is Tim and thank you so much for joining us. This episode is proudly brought to you by Hop Hen Brewing in Lillardale. Make sure you get down there, see Mike, Jody, and the crew down there for some delicious craft beers uh, out on Beresford Road. So thanks very much to our amazing sponsors there. Today is a very special episode. We get to sit down with former Melbourne captain and number two pick, Jack Trengrove. He was an absolute pleasure to have on the show and we talk all things footy, what he's up to post-football and at the end we give him our first test run on our brand new segment five in a flash for our guest appearances. So please enjoy the interview. We'd love to still hear your feedback. Um, It's been a real privilege to talk to some of these former players and people that have been involved with the club. So yeah, keep the feedback going. It's been uh, a terrific opportunity for us to learn a lot more about our football club. So enjoy the show and we'll see you next week. Go Dees. Our next guest played 89 games in his AFL career, 86 of those as a demon, and he's got to be one of the only players that's got back-to-back fines for umpire contact, but <laughs> most importantly, he's the 43rd captain of the Melbourne Football Club, Jack Trengove. Thank you so much for joining us, mate. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Tim. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that's uh, something to be proud of, <laughs> with the back-to-back fines. I think it also came after I got suspended for tackling Patrick Dangerfield, so I was... Um, Bad couple of weeks there. A costly few weeks, that's for sure. No, oh, I can. Well, yeah, the tackle did obviously, but like, it just must have been one of those flavors of the month, as you know, as so often rolls through with footy and umpire contact. And now you, you don't see it paid at all, or it's just players are well aware of it. But I think, yeah, it seems like you must have been a bit of a victim at that stage. Yeah, I think I was just stiff at the time, but they're pretty costly fines. I think they double every time as well. So, you know, a fortnight of um, going from whatever it was. Fifteen hundred dollars to three grand. It um yeah, it takes its toll pretty quick. Is it frustrating? Like, surely you just think get out of the way. Like, it's not like you're intentionally going out to to make contact with him. Like, it just must be must be so frustrating in that sense. Yeah, I think um I think I can't remember the first one. I think the first one it might have been like at a stoppage and the umpy just clipped my back the back of my foot and I didn't even feel it and then rocked up on Monday and had um. You know, someone come and say to me that, uh, yeah, you've been fine. And then the following week, it was against Collingwood, and Pendlebury actually used it as a bit of a block for him. So he just shoved me into the umpire, and then I've copped the fine as well. So I guess it was a, a lesson to be learned as a young fella to um, use those things to your advantage. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Almost like a screen in basketball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can make your way around. <laughs> And uh, we'll start off with an interesting one. Where, where do you think beating Russell Robinson and the skill tester sits in the hierarchy of your lifetime achievements in the AFL? Do you remember that video? <laughs> now that you mention it, I do. But um, that was a distant memory until just then. Uh, I can't even really remember what skill, what skill it is. Kicking footies at a bunch of bins stacked up like bowling pins. 
yes, I do remember that. It looked, I don't know, it looked a little bit cringeworthy to film. I don't know how you felt at the time, and, and I was a few years ago now, but it's... <laughs> yeah, I think it was a classic where um, they really forced any player to try to do it. It wasn't um, certainly um, a voluntary thing, but um, no, Robert had a bit of fun with it, and I think the fans enjoyed bits of it anyway. Yeah, no, nah, that's that's it. All for the all for the fans. And going back to the start of uh, of your football journey, what moment did you realise that playing footy for your career was something that you wanted and were you know that was within grasp? Really interesting question. Um, I guess you know going back a bit on my background, um, I was born in a little country town called Narracourt, which is um, three and a half hours southeast of Adelaide. Uh, you know, very privileged um, upbringing, I guess. And I say privileged um, in the way that I had a very healthy and loving family. Um, every opportunity was sort of in front of me and I was allowed to have a crack at anything I wanted and was just very fortunate. I don't take that for granted at all. And um, my childhood was relatively um, easy in that sense as well. Um, went to primary school, as I said, tried just about every sport possible and in country towns, you have to to fill up the numbers and um, progressed and obviously played footy all the way through and really enjoyed it and 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 did quite well at a junior country level but um, you know that's so small in the whole scheme of the the AFL system and whether you think you could ever get there and it was it was clearly always a dream for me but I never thought that it was actually attainable and I moved to Adelaide for schooling at Prince Alfred College and then I guess you just progress through the different um, like SNFL teams. I played at Sturt and was lucky enough to get selected in a few representative sides. Um, and you just go through that process. And it wasn't probably until uh, my draft year where um, I had a pretty good under-18s carnival. Uh, played some senior footy out at Sturt when I really thought that maybe this could be a, um, a legitimate goal for me long-term. And speaking of that, you had a pretty famous prelim for Sturt didn't you? Like it was a pretty successful season for Sturt in that year? Yeah, um, it, it was an interesting year in general because I had sort of, you know, I, I wanted to play school footy, which was um, is really big in Adelaide, uh, played for Sturt and then there's state under-18s as well. So I had three different coaches trying to grab me at different stages. So it was a bit of a juggling act and uh, played the under-18s carnival um, and got back and had done the full pre-season at Sturt and actually played a bit of senior footy the year before, but um, got back and we had a pretty good team and got some finals experience at senior footy, which was um, absolutely incredible at the time. And we were probably the underdogs going into that prelim and um, lucky enough got over the line to play in the granny against Centrals and got touched up there. But um, yeah, I didn't, didn't play too badly and I was, just, I was just happy to be a part of it, to be honest, as a, as a 17, 18-year-old. And was it in that grand final for Central? Was it James Seller, future demon? Did he play in that grand final side against you? Because uh, he the, ended up playing the for the prelim, I reckon. Oh, was the it prelim, prelim? Was it? Yeah, yeah. He, he played at Glenelg. Um, so yeah, we we came against Selzy back then. And then, obviously, moving from then, you move on to the draft, and you selected at pick two in two thousand and nine, and in what's shaped up to be pretty. Pretty uh, star-studded draft when you look at some of the people that went, you know, along with yourself and, and the people surrounding as well too, and arriving at the D's and then making your debut the following year, round one, out on the home of footy and the G. What was it like walking into the football club for the first time and then running out in round one? 
Yeah, no, an absolute whirlwind. And uh, I mentioned that it was always a dream of mine to play AFL one day and to actually live that out was was so surreal. Um, you know, it was fortunate, unfortunate position that I actually, we had obviously the, the top two picks that year um, and about a month out from the draft because I was going to have to move to Melbourne, uh, Dean Bailey came over as, as well as the recruiters um, to meet my family. And, and on that day, as I said, about a month before the draft, they actually told me that they were going to take me pick two. So, um, you know, you, you don't actually believe it until it's read out, but it was quite a unique experience in that regard. And it just gave myself and my family a bit of time to prepare for, for what was coming. Um, and then, yeah, the, the draft night was an incredible experience. Uh, and then literally within two days, you're living in Melbourne, um, you're with the host family, meeting all your new teammates. And um, I still remember the, the first day at the club. We were training out at Casey Fields and walking into the room and, you know, seeing the likes of James McDonald, Brad Green, Cameron Bruce, Jared Rivers around and, and now being able to call them teammates. It was um, quite, quite an interesting, I guess, situation to go through and, um, yeah, I've been lucky enough to, to be, go through a few senior pre-seasons uh, the two years prior. So I didn't really miss a beat um, in my first pre-season at the D's and was lucky enough that uh, Bale's coach at the time um, gave me an opportunity through some pre-season games and then round one. And um, yeah, round one was just a whole nother ball game again. Um, we played the Hawks, unfortunately, and they were pretty handy back in 2010. And they... I think they beat us by 50 or 60 points, but just that feeling of running out on the G in front of a huge crowd, first ever time. Um, and the game just went so quickly. I remember um, I remember that in the first quarter, I had a handball given my way and I would have looked that sort of out of it in that situation because I still remember getting whacked from behind and pushed to the ground and then popped back up, didn't know what would happen. And then Luke Hodge just gave me a little, tap on the ass and said, keep going, young fella. And I was like, wow, this is this is the real deal. That's pretty unreal. Yeah, certainly memories there that would be etched in forever. As you said, when you get a champion of the game like Hodgie, gives you a little spur like that. And as you said, that that Hawks era is so, uh, will go down in history as one of the greatest sides to play the game. It's, yeah, that's a pretty memorable debut, regardless of the result in the end for the D's, but yeah, far out, not, not a bad story. And then, yeah, it kind of comes full circle. Well, not full circle, but talk a bit later about your comeback game, but you ended up coming back against Hawthorne as well too. So there's a bit of irony in that as well. Yeah. But you're talking about Dean Bailey, I feel like somebody that maybe in Melbourne's past that doesn't get enough credit uh, from, you know, from outsiders and was probably seen as a bit of a scapegoat throughout a pretty tumultuous time for the, for the D's, but I know that from a player's point of view, he's really highly regarded as a fantastic coach. And I know talking to Fitzy, loved loved everything that Bales did for the club and for player development. Can you sort of speak, what was your first impressions of him? You, you sort of said that he came over and met your family, but what was your first impressions of him as, you know, your first senior coach uh, and his impact on the playing group and yourself, especially with such a, you know, a big draft pool coming in that year as well too? Yeah, I couldn't speak more highly of Bales. Um, as I alluded to, he, he flew over and, you know, met my family and he just, you know, gave me so much respect and, um, you know, really 
was the first person to make me truly believe that I could make it at that level. And um, just such a fantastic mentor to me, so kind and caring. Um, and yeah, we had a really strong relationship um, throughout that time. And uh, as, I, as I sort of said, he, he gave me the first opportunity to play and, and really believed in me. And I think, you know, the first couple of years of my footy in, in the AFL system was really a, a good reflection of what Bales provided me. And um, you said that, Fitzy alluded to the fact that he was really high in player development. He's obviously given a task of grabbing a really young group of, of raw young players with talent and trying to, you know, turn them into a really good footy side and really good players. And, you know, those first couple of years, I, I really think he did that. Um, you know, we obviously were inconsistent at, at different stages, but our best was definitely good enough. We, um, you know, had some amazing performances you know, in 2010, 2011, and even, you know, the start of 2012. And it's really sad for the fact that, um, you know, that Geelong, came, Geelong game came when it did. Um, because I think at the time, from memory, we were nudging the top eight and, and going okay. Um, and obviously, you know, that sort of display and performance is inexcusable. But to think that Bales is the scapegoat in that situation and the players sort of don't take any responsibility is really hard to take as a player because, you know, I'm only speaking for myself, I can't speak for the rest of the players at the time, but we all really loved Bales and, and thought that he was the coach for us into the long term. And for it to end the way it did um, quite abruptly was, um, yeah, really challenging for, for the players, but more so for Bales and his family. It's, yeah, one of those stories that I think will just go down. We got a bit more insight the other week talking to Fitzy and, and it reminded me of the whole situation in the, you know, behind the scenes as well too because obviously after that after that game down at Geelong and club was, you know, very much publicised as where it was after that, you know, largest defeat in X amount of years, whatnot, and sort of saying, I think, was it Cameron Schwab that was on in the firing line that had already been sort of told that his contract was, was done and then... They, yeah, potentially backflipped on that decision and then let go of Bales instead, which unfortunately seems like, yeah, that he, he was the man to take the fall and really kind of spooned on from there. A bit of a coaching carousel for yourself and for other players of that era as well too where the consistency of coaching was just non-existent and I think it really hurt. We talked about player development a lot the other week. Uh, I think it really seems to have hurt a lot of top-end talent that was coming into the draft uh, you know, and, and Melbourne's ability to develop top-end talent into players that would stick around. You look at the blokes from your draft in particular, you know, you're talking your Gisbets and Tapscots and all these blokes that go on top 20 that are no longer there. Um, you can't help but feel that the decisions made by the club at the time would have certainly impacted that. Yeah, oh, for sure. I think, um, you know, you talk about consistent messaging when you've, you're getting, you know, coaches are turning over so quickly and game plans are changing and strategies are, are changing going forward. It is so hard to get any sort of continuity. And I feel like the relationship between coach and player is so critical. And when that continually changes, it, it would definitely have an impact on development. Um, but I guess, yeah, from, from my point of view, I've, I've never been one to sort of dwell on the past, but at the same time, you can't help but sort of wonder what would have happened if Bales was given another opportunity to sort of keep going at least for the rest of the year and see what we could have made of that season. Um, but I do know, like I've you know had close relationships with 
with board members and, and president and um, CEO and stuff at the time that there was a lot of pressure coming from the supporting base and um, outside sources as well, which, which makes their job incredibly hard also. But um, yeah, it, it is frustrating um, to have gone through that. But at the same time, I will say that I was so young, like I think I was, um, you know, 19, maybe 20 at that time. Um, so I didn't know anything different. Uh, a lot of the murmurs that were going around behind closed doors about potential, you know, Schwabby leaving or um, Bales being in the firing line, I, I probably didn't really um, understand what was going on because I was so young and I just thought, well, this is a part of AFL football. Um, but then I guess when it came year after year, I understood that this is pretty rare and, and you see some of the great clubs around that had so much consistency and continuity between not only the coaching staff, but playing group as well. Um, the other hard part for us at the time was, as you well know, a lot of our senior players were getting um, flicked at the same time. And there was this whole sort of shift to, to youth and development of that youth. And while that is important in terms of a whole transition into, you know, becoming a great club, you also need really good, strong senior players around to, to guide the young players and, and show them the ropes and, and I guess teach them the tricks of the trade because um, without that, it is, it is really difficult to um, get the best out of every individual. So, um, you know, there's a number of factors as to why I don't think it probably worked throughout that time. Um, and I think the club's done very well at sort of changing that going forward. But, yeah, there's no doubting there was a, a few difficult years within it all. Definitely, but sort of talk about people behind the scenes. You were there, fortunately, and, and got would have got to spend a little bit of time with uh, the great man Jim Steins, and he was there. You know, whilst when you were drafted to the club, it unfortunately passed away not too long after. Can you describe what his influence was like to you and and the playing group, just in that kind of brief amount of time that you would have spent with him there? He was huge. Um, I don't think it can ever be understated what he did for the Melbourne Football Club and I guess his legacy continues to do for the Melbourne Footy Club. Um, you know, I'd only known Jim Steins from that Irish guy on TV really growing up um, and then to meet him in the flesh and you talk about people going through adversity and putting on a, um, a positive front, he epitomises that in every sense. Um, so inspiring for the whole playing group to, to get a bit of an insight and we really did see a lot of his his hard hardcore struggles that he was going through, yet he'd just keep fronting up and putting on a brave face at our games and functions and coming out to training sessions. And, um, yeah, if, if you didn't have any motivation, which you shouldn't be in that situation, but he was just such a great motivator for the playing group and um, it was certainly a, a really tough day, I guess. You'd always had in the back of your mind what he was going through, that it was inevitable that that day was going to come at some stage, but nothing prepares you for it. And um, as we said, he was, he was so influential on so many people, not only in the footy club, but in the community. And um, yeah, it was, it was a really tough time to go through. After, you know, you had a good couple of seasons under your belt and then all of a sudden, just prior to 2012, you appointed co-captain with fellow Jack in, in Grimesy there. Come as a surprise initially, given that you'd only been in the system a couple of years? Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't think uh, I, I'd be lying if I stood here and said that I was expecting to be captain at the age of 20. Um, yeah, it was a really unique time. Um, obviously, we'd gone through the turmoil with Bales um, 
getting sacked and then finding a new coach, finding Nildy, and then I guess everyone back on deck trying to put their best foot forward that preseason to impress a new coach, try to understand a new game plan. Um, and we had had a lot of turnover in the playing group itself. And I guess I alluded to the fact before that we, we got rid of a lot of senior players um, and there was this big shift to, to giving the youth more opportunity. And we went through the whole leadership group um, process, which uh, every club does every year. And, you know, the players voted, the coaches had their say, board members probably had their say. And, um, yeah, when I was pulled into the room that day by Nildy and with Grimesy by my side to say that you guys were going to captain the club going forward, it was um, obviously a huge honour. Um, we all know the, you know, the amazing history and tradition that this footy club has um, and to be named a, a captain of it, um, you know, so early on in my career, I, I sort of sat there and, you know, I knew it was going to be challenging, but at the same time, I, I, from my point of view, I, I sort of took the the thought that, you know, if my teammates, my, the coaches and everyone at the footy club think that I'm the man for the job here, then I'm going to try to step up and, and do it as best as I possibly could. So that's the approach I took. Um, and obviously, you know, you, you sit there um, at that point in time thinking, I'm, I'm 20 years old, captain of the oldest footy club um, in the land. Um, we've got an exciting future ahead, new coach, um, new game plan, new young players around. Um, you know, this could be the most incredible 10 years of, of my life ahead. Um, and, you know, everything happens for a reason. It didn't quite turn out that way, but, gee, I learned a hell of a lot about myself as an individual. And, um, you know, I have no doubt that I'm a much better person when I sit here today, having gone through that experience and experienced the things that I did throughout that time. And it's going to sound completely backwards, but I'm, I'm very grateful for that time. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. It's not, you know, it's not, not anything backwards in terms of getting to an end point. It's not always about, you know, not always about the achievement. It's the journey is such a big part of it as well too. And, and whilst that journey might not go the same way as you planned, you know, like and I took a long time to get to the career that I wanted to eventually get to and, and trialed another number of different jobs and, and jumped over a number of different hurdles. But as you said, at the same time, uh, you know, as a teacher and could have easily burned out at 22, 23, but then ended up taking my time and, and getting a bit of life experience, trying a few different things and start teaching when I was 27. I would, I don't think I'd be in the job still today if, if I hadn't taken those things. So I completely relate to what to what you said there talking about sorry the playing group had turned to youth and was a few veteran players and had departed but you still had a number of senior players including a couple of former captains around you at the time you know you're talking like james mcdonald was still there i think in your first year as captain uh yeah brad green who'd been captain the previous year did did you reach out to those guys for sort of guidance when you were appointed captain i mean again like being the youngest captain in afl history and having those leaders around you, as you said, the importance of having senior players there for development, but I suppose also for guidance and leadership as well too. How are they in the fact that you've got a bloke that was there for a captain for 12 months in Brad Green, I'm sure would have given you a chop out if you needed in that sense? Definitely. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. Um, unfortunately, Jimmy Mack was actually gone after my first year. And then you're right in saying that Greeny became captain for my second year. And then that was a that was a really awkward um, situation in itself because 
you know, I became really good friends with Greeny when I um, first moved to Melbourne. He um, he lived just around the corner, so he used to drive me to training every day, and we we became really close. And then, you know, he was the captain, and um, and then it transitioned into Grimes. You know, I being the captain, and you know, he went about it as well as you'd expect someone like Greeny too. But when suddenly you go from a 20 year old, just trying to learn your trade and try to, I guess, find your place within a football club really and the AFL industry. And then suddenly you're, you're pushed ahead and put up as captain and um, you're still arguably one of the younger players on the list. It, it is a, it was so backwards for me at the time because I've always grown up thinking respect your elders, do your time sort of situation. And then, that really went backwards when I sort of stood up to be captain. But I did have some great people around me like Karini and um, I was even lucky enough to um, be introduced to a couple of other sort of leaders from other clubs, um, you know, had a few coffees with Cameron Ling and, and learned a lot from him and, and different players around. So the support was there. Unfortunately, we were just going through a, a situation with the footy club as well where, you know, you, you win the first couple of games in that first year, it's probably a different story, but we were under so much pressure just to find any form of success and um, progress that, um, you know, in those sort of situations, a lot of individuals worry about their own sort of backyard and, you know, think about worrying about getting themselves a game and it goes away from that real, I guess, team environment and everyone trying to help each other and on the one path because, I know, I think the start of the season, probably people started to doubt, um, you know, the game plan that we had and whether what Nildi was trying to implement was actually going to be successful for us. And as soon as you get a few of those little fractures, then a lot of things break down very quickly. So, you know, it was difficult in so many different aspects. And um, I think the hardest thing was the fact that we didn't get any wins for a long time. And um, it probably just put doubt in people's minds and, um, that only made the whole process a lot more difficult. Given that we've got quite a number of young leaders now, you look at Marcus Bontempelli, Paddy Cripps, you know, play young captains like yourself that have been given the helm so early in their career. If you had a piece of advice you could give to any future young captains, what would it be from your experience? Yeah, great question. I think the thing for me would be that, um, you know, you were put into that position for a reason and that reason was what you were doing in the lead up to that, you know, the day that the vote happened or whatever it was, all the actions that you were, you were providing your team and, and teammates and, and all the things that you were doing was the reason why you got voted into being captain. So just because you've got the title now, you shouldn't change in any way that you go about things. And I think, you know, my, and I got this feedback a bit over the couple of years that I was in it is that, um, and I don't want this to sound, um, I don't know, not arrogant, but I think, you know, my biggest downfall was I was almost too selfless and forgot to take care of myself in it all. I was so worried and consumed about making sure my teammates were going okay and the team was on the right path and, you know, losing sleep over those sorts of things and, and probably neglected my own personal form and development Um which, you know, if I had my time again, you know, I think that the best form of leadership is no doubt to, you know, help those around you, but it's to take care of things out in the field that you can control yourself, which is your own sort of performance. And, and that form of leadership allows others to sort of jump on board and follow your way. So um, that's probably one thing that, 
the title probably got to me in a way is that I was probably too consumed about everything else and, and neglected my own, um, my own form and, and myself. And it's, yeah, definitely not taking anything away, but you're looking at captains like Jonesy and, and even Max at the moment uh, and, and Viney to an extent, but like he was somebody that probably copped a little bit of criticism, but it was certainly highlighted, you know, his form, as, as you said, like the form maybe gets, maybe gets analyzed a little bit more, like captains playing form. And he said, the best thing you can do for your club is, is get out there and lead by example and play, you know, bringing your level of play up to another level to, in order to, to rally the troops behind you and, and, you know, move from there. But it's, it's so much we're watching Max Gorn, who arguably becoming captain at, what was he? 27, 28. Jonesy was captain for a long time, but he, again, was quite dominant in his role there. You can kind of see, where you got players like Patrick Cripps at the moment who, you know, potentially whether it's a game style thing or a bit of a burden with the captaincy as well too. It's it's something that's easily, I guess, picked on by outsiders and it's it's easily targeted and it's always a topic for discussion. Yeah, oh definitely. And I think, you know, Max is a classy example at the moment. Um, you know, the age of twenty nine or whatever he is now, and he's so confident in his own ability and where he belongs in in the AFL. Um, industry right now from a playing perspective that he is the classic example of boys I'm going this way you better jump on my shoulders and come with me because um, if not you'll you'll fall away and and we'll go nowhere so he um you know and I, I compare to where he is now to where I was at 20 and as I've said a few times I was probably still trying to figure out if I actually still belong in the system and and trying to find my feet and and learn my own craft and um, that's probably neglected a bit because I was trying to sort of take on these other responsibilities. But I've got a lot of respect for what Max is doing at the moment. I think he's, you know, the perfect captain that Melbourne need right now. And um, he truly does lead by example. And you can see everybody just walks a bit taller around him. Yeah, no, it certainly does. Unfortunately, going on from that, it's where everything starts to, the hurdles start to appear and find out this fancy word that I've never heard before about a bone in your foot called a navicular. When did you first realise something was up with your foot? Yeah, no, it was it was news to me as well, the old navicular bone. Um, it's certainly become a bit more prominent in my life since. But um, I think it was, uh, I always get confused with dates, but I think it might have been um, going into the pre-season of that first year with Nildy. Um, so 2012 was that. Um I sort of had this dull pain, I think, um, over the off-season and start of the pre-season in my foot. And I'd rolled my ankle a few times um, the, the year prior. And so I just thought it was, you know, just an issue that was from the past um, rolling of the ankle and that I'd get over it. And then it just got progressively worse as the weeks went by. And I think it was in December pre-season, just before we went away on one of those Darwin camps and it got unbearable and we, we had a scan and, and found out there was a little crack in my navicular bone. So for those that, you know, want to learn a bit more about the navicular, I can take this offline and, and talk in a bit more detail because I know every bit of detail in it. But um, it's essentially a tiny little bone in your foot that takes a lot of the force in, in everything that you do. And obviously in footy, uh, the feet are so important because you're not only kicking with them, but running and walking and doing everything. So, um, yeah, it was back in was that end of 2011, start of 2012. And, and then from there, um, I got back and played the full season. And then it wasn't until the following preseason that um, 
yeah, it just got a hell of a lot worse. Um, and that's when I had to have surgery. And, uh, you know, fast forward two years from there, I had another, some more surgery and um, there was a lot of footy missed and a lot of time in the gym, which was extremely difficult at the time, especially when I was captain during that period, because, you know, the one time, well, the one thing you can do as captain is to to go out and perform on the footy field and, and help the team get better. And I wasn't able to do that. And I was stuck in the gym riding a, a bloody bike and pushing around some bench press, um, which was, you know, really difficult at the time. But um, as I sort of said at the start of this podcast is um, I learned so much about myself throughout that. There was plenty of adversity and um, I don't know, you, you probably just get, get a bit of perspective on life. Um, you know, I was, 18 years old, as I said, had a pretty easy upbringing, um, was very fortunate uh, to get drafted and got opportunity to play early in my career. I hadn't really had much adversity in my life. So um, to go down with an injury and, and be told that you're not allowed to do what you love doing for two years uh, was was really difficult. And I know so many other people going through so many worse things, but at the time it was a challenge for me, but I, I tried to stay positive and, and keep being a positive influence on my teammates and the footy club. And um, I feel like I was throughout that period, but um, yeah, it's no doubt injuries suck. Um, and up until that point, I think I'd missed maybe one game with a sore hammy um, when I was 16 years old. So I literally had never been injured in my life. Um, so that, that changed, changed away. But um, now nah, once again, I, uh, it gave me an opportunity to focus on other things. So I was always keen on my studies through school and had picked up a, a commerce degree when I started playing footy. So, you know, while I was, wasn't allowed to play footy and was, was hampered from that point of view, it gave me an opportunity to go and, you know, tick off a few more units at, at university and, and it got me through my degree a lot quicker, which I'm very grateful for now. So, um, you know, everything, as I said, everything happens for a reason. And I think for whatever reason, I was being challenged at that time and I needed to step up and um, yeah, I think I'm a, a much better person as a result of it. It's yeah, a really interesting take. And you think about how hard it would be, as you said, as a leader of the club and as a captain of the club to be stuck on the sidelines. Uh, great that you had a, an outlet like your studies and that to be able to focus some of your energies on because I, I just can imagine it would have been incredibly frustrating not to be out there and if you're stuck in the gym did, like did the club try and get you to did they do anything else to try and get you into the game like obviously it would have been you know with the coaching group like on game days and stuff like did they try and get you involved it's a long time that you're out of the game how do they still try and keep you involved as much as they could yeah, there's different little things that we sort of did along the journey. And, you know, I was up in the coaching box a few times and, and given little roles to to help out some of our younger players in the team and, and younger players at the club. So I'd be out at the Casey games trying to help them. And, um, you know, a few little roles like that along the journey. But at the same time, they didn't want to, you know, go too hard because I think the, the most important thing with uh, players and long-term injuries is probably the mental state and making sure that, you know, you have that balance in life to to um, be able to deal with different um, little challenges along the way. And I think the greatest thing that I had at that time was, as you said, that outlet to go and, you know, pursue something else away from footy. So because footy can be also consuming, um, you know, at different stages. So, um, yeah, there, there are a few little mechanisms in place to, to try to get through it. But I think the thing that um, helped me most was, 
yeah, getting away and having that outlet and a bit of balance in life to, um, you know, feel like you're still making progress somewhere and, um, you know, making yourself a better person as a result of, you know, some adversity that have been thrown your way. And then you get to, yeah, the end of 2014 uh, and this almost trade to Richmond kind of occurs. And I don't know, maybe maybe from, from your point, did it seem like a little bit of a fresh start in that sense, maybe to try and put, I, I can clearly tell that you love the club and I'm sure the last thing you would have wanted to do is, is leave the boys um, in the lurch, but it seemed like a bit of an opportunity that could have maybe benefited both parties in that sense. Yeah, um, really, really tough circumstance, uh, that whole situation. But I was literally, it was the off season. I was on my way back from my first surgery of my foot and um, all things were, were progressing pretty well sitting on my couch in the off season and, and got a call from Paul Rose and uh, Rosie said to me mate we've um, been offered a, uh, a deal with Richmond which we think you should um, you know strongly consider and I was taken aback at the time because as you said I was so passionate and um, feel like felt like I had you know unfulfilled with my time at the D's um, and I, I really wanted to try to see this club through to see some success and then you have the head coach tell you that you should be looking elsewhere. Um, pretty confronting situation so a um, bit of a whirlwind 24 hours. I, I was at you know about punt road the next day and they rolled out the red carpet. It was sort of dimmer and um, the coaches and then you know Cochin, Rewald, all the senior players and went in for a presentation and you know, it was the classic sort of PowerPoint presentation where your name like lights up in the midfield with amongst the likes of Cochin and, and Martin and the rest. So um, I walked away from there thinking, what the hell am I going to do? Like I had never even considered leaving the D's. And um, I went away that weekend with my family and my girlfriend and sort of looked at all the different alternatives. And um, it was that feeling of I was, I was being loved again by, by Richmond. So um, you know, you, you feel a bit on the outer when when the coach tells you that you're no longer required and then you get this other club that are, are literally showing as much love as they possibly could. And I think I got a text message from every Richmond player in the next 24 hours saying that, you know, we'd love to have you on board. So um, I was really torn. And I guess the, the one thing that happened within that as well is um, we went and did a fitness test and had to test out my foot a bit. And um, Richmond, as they well should have, wanted to see another scan. So we got a, a CT scan. Um, and within that time, I'd pretty much come to terms with the fact that I was going to be playing for Richmond going forward. And then the scan came back and um, it showed that it, a crack had appeared through the screws that I had in my navicular bone. Um, so that's when it all fell through. So, you know, silver linings are, at the same time, you know, you you look out and see the success that Richmond had, but gee, I'm grateful to have stayed with the D's and stayed with a lot of my close mates throughout that time as well. And um, it was probably harder to take the fact that I knew that I was going to miss another 18 months of footy because I had to have more surgery and get the screws taken out and um, bone marrow put in and surgeons telling me that I might not even walk again, let alone try to play footy. So um, pretty big couple of months there. Uh, I'm not going to lie, but, um, yeah, it was it was it was a weird experience to go through. It would have been a, sort of getting 
flashbacks or you know we spoke to Shane and Woden at the end of last year and similar sort of things like parallels to what you're talking about obviously not the injury side of things but more so the want to stay at the club but then this feeling of of being wanted by another club and you know being told that you're no longer required and for for a club and for a playing group and for a coaching group that you've given absolutely everything to it must be he said something similar like he said you know Danaher shook my hand and said yep we want you at the club and then two weeks later told that getting traded and then you get Malthouse on the phone and you got Bucks calling him and saying yeah come over come over it must be yeah a pretty hard decision to make especially when your your heart's aligned with one side but if they're no longer sort of showing the faith in you it yeah pretty tricky situation in that sense but as you said silver lining and we're sort of seeing a similar story with T-Mac uh, this year for us and I really love what Petrarca came out and said this year about you know I, I hope he sticks it up and like in terms of the club about proving him wrong and proving supporters wrong and, and sort of coming out with a bit of a you know a bit of a chip on the shoulder and and saying no I do have a place at this club and Unfortunately, it was a bit of a longer road back for yourself. But then after, what was it, 797 days, uh, you managed to, yeah, come back out onto the field. And as I said, mentioning at the top against Hawthorne, and I was at that game and I still remember, and I'm sure you do, do you remember the cheers coming, like running back onto the ground off the interchange for the first time after all that after all that time off? Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, it's um, very fond memories. And um, you, you mentioned, you know, the... The idea of, of not necessarily sticking it up them, but proving them wrong. Um, I certainly had those feelings when, you know, the the day before they're saying goodbye, and then the next day they're making out they're welcoming you back. It, it's difficult to go through, but um, yeah, I, that's when I truly learned that the industry itself is a bit of a meat market, and I understand, I absolutely understand it now. At the time, I probably didn't, but. Um, it's all what's going to be best for the football club going forward. Um, that's the decision that's always as is always made, and and no player is ever bigger than the footy club. But um, yeah, from that day forward, I was like, gee, I'm going to get back and I'm going to play and I'm going to prove these guys that I deserve to be here. And you know, I'm a I'm a required player within the you know the starting 22. And um, as you say, it was a, a bit of a different road that. And some have to take. It was another 18 months of um, rehab and um, in the gym and and building my leg up from scratch again because it literally just did disintegrate and, and turn into bone and skin. Um, and yeah, amazing to have um, you know got back and and then played some games at Casey and showed some good form. And then um, yeah, they gave me an opportunity to play again against Hawthorne on that day. And I just remember the the wave of emotions that went through my body when. Um, you know, I was told that I was going to play my first game. Um, it did feel like my debut all over again. And you just sort of reflect back on everything that you'd been through. And, um, you know, to do it with all the, my mates that I'd sort of built such strong relationships with as well. Um, it was a really satisfying time. It's just, um, you know, frustrating. that I couldn't sort of go on with it and, and, and play some um, good, consistent footy in the senior side from there. But um, very proud of the fact that I was able to get back when a, a lot of people sort of doubted that I'd ever be able to do it. And I think, you know, whilst, as you said, you didn't spend a whole lot of time in the senior side after that, but I think it must have given you a world of confidence just to be able to get up on the field and whether you're playing for the Ds or playing at Casey, to, to be actually able to run out games. And I'm sure there would have been that maybe that little bit of element of doubt in your mind all the time that something would re 
reoccur or, or again, but geez, it must have felt pretty good to be able to have at least a bit of consistency behind your belt after the time that you'd had. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't have moments throughout that whole rehab process of, um, you know, be out going for a run and you'd be feeling a little something in your foot and you're like, far out, is this coming back? And so many doubts and so many speed bumps along the way, but I was so determined to to prove not only to myself, but to everyone that I was capable of getting back. And, and at the end of the day, you know, I'd, I'd been stripped of being able to do the thing that I love doing and that sort of being able to go out for a, a run just because you can and, and kick the footy around with your mates and um, having that stripped away was was difficult, but I was so keen to, to get it back. So, um, you know, when I did start getting some consistent games together um, in the VFL and a few in the AFL, um, it, I alluded to the fact that it gives you perspective on life and I, I really did feel that when I was back playing at the end of the day, you know, I wanted to play at the highest level I possibly could and, and play consistent footy. But at the same time, I was just so excited and the happiest man alive just to be out playing footy again. And whatever level that was, if it was for the B grade out in the country, um, sitting in the forward pocket, but just to know the fact that you could be out there doing what you love doing with your mates. Um, yeah, it was a really satisfying feeling. And I've taken that approach in it in every sense from that day um, to just make sure that I enjoy every moment that I have out on the footy grip, footy ground because you just never know when it's going to be taken away from you. That's right. I think rewind, what was it, six, seven years ago to your, to your debut and number two pick and this weight of expectation and yeah. and the pressure, I suppose, of, of performing and everything going at the club. The fact that, yeah, all that time later, you, as you said, you just gratitude kicks in and, and you're having fun. And I think, it, yeah, it would just be like a a weight lifted off your shoulders and just being able to enjoy the little things like running around regardless of the competition that you're playing. Um, I thought it was pretty scary when you said that if the doctors are foreshadowing about not being able to walk again, I think something like that is would be yeah pretty frightening to hear. But I think then being able to do those little things and, and get back up on the ground must have been yeah incredibly exciting. And then obviously your time at Melbourne comes to comes to an end at the end of 2017 and there ongoing discussions throughout that season potentially foreseeing that that was coming yeah so i think um from memory yeah i got back and played a couple of games um and then went back into the vfl um and played consistent for the vfl and then was given another year on my contract um because i I've proven the fact that i could get back and was healthy again and then i you know went away that off season and thought i'm gonna you know put in a really good pre-season and make sure that I'm banging the door down every week and um, showing that I still belong at this level. And I went away and did that um, and, you know, played a fair bit of pretty much all VFL that year. And I think I might've played a couple of games, the AFL side again, but um, you know, there's no doubt that when you get to the end of end of a season and you're not given many opportunities, I think, um, I think I might've won the, the VFL best and fairest that year, which, um, is a great thing. I'm, I'm really proud of that, but it, it probably shows that you're playing too many games at the VFL level, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I wasn't dumb. I sort of knew that, you know, if I wasn't getting the opportunity and these young boys were coming in and, and taking my spot, then the writing's probably on the wall. So um, got to the end of that season. I think we, we played some finals footy and, um, yeah, 
had the conversation and I was prepared for it. But at the same time, it's still a reality check when you get told that you're no longer required. And, um, you know, at that time I was like, far out, is this my footy career done? Um, so yeah, went through that process and, and was lucky enough that Ken Hinckley came knocking um, a couple of weeks later and um, yeah, got the opportunity to come back to Adelaide, which is where sort of a lot of my schoolmates and family are. And um, I actually grew up going for the Crows. So it's quite weird putting the, uh, the Port Guernsey on for the first time and, um, you know, had to get rid of the D scars for a couple of years and, and, and go down that path. And once again, I just went into that mode of trying to prove everyone that prove to everyone that I still belonged at this level and um, was fit enough and, and good enough. And um, yeah, I was lucky enough to play a couple of games at Port as well uh, and play some, you know, pretty consistent footy at SANFL level for the Maggies. But um, I did come into that that contract knowing that well, Kenny said to me, he goes, mate, I've, I've heard you, you know, a good person to have around the club and you'll be good for the young players. So you're here purely as a backup um, and are you up for that? And at the time I was like, bloody oath, I'm going to prove him wrong and, and get in the side and, and prove that I could and did still belong at the level. And um, yeah, it was, it was a great couple of years and, and, and a couple of years that I have fond memories of um, and very, very grateful for getting that opportunity. Do you, are your family all Crow supporters then? Are they, well, or... they they were Crow supporters and then they're hardcore D supporters and then suddenly you're a poor player. So they're all a bit torn. Um, I've got a couple of young nieces that didn't know what to do because their colours were changing so frequently. Um, but uh, it's sort of funny. I, I think we're all D supporters now but still have um, a soft spot for the other teams. I was going to say, it's a pretty fierce rivalry, isn't it? <laughs> it <laughs> is, of... yeah. I think so, uh, yeah. a lot of my mates as well from school sort of had to come along to the port games and I've forced them to wear uh, port guernseys or uh, port scarves. It was it was pretty tough for some of them. And, yeah, as you said, like you played a fair few uh, handy games in the sample and pretty much had the ball in the string from what I remember. You know, as you said, beating down the door and, and probably would have seemed like a nice kind of not farewell, but at least going into the sunset, playing in, in your home state, close to family and friends, which would have been a huge benefit. Obviously not always at the level that you would have liked to, but I think at that point and enjoying playing your footy and having an impact on those young players as well at that time. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of players that would still be there now that I'm sure would, uh, would be very grateful for the time that you spent with them too. But they're, they're called your... AFL career and so looking at post footy what did so you finished your commerce degree and what are you up to these days what are you what are you doing with yourself yeah no um uh just to follow on from your your, your ending point there I, I did really enjoy my time at port and um you know a number of those younger players that I was trying to sort of support and help are now playing really good consistent footy at AFL level like Willem Drew um Connor Rosie Zach Butters Xavier Dersma um you know and I, I felt like the whole, um, I guess, life cycle of an AFL player is that you're that young player at one stage. And um, if I ever got any advice from an older player from back then, I was just cherished it. So I thought, well, now here's my opportunity to sort of give back and try to help out, which is what I tried to do. And yeah, as I said, played we played in the granny that year for the Port Maggies and lost it, unfortunately. But I just loved playing footy and it was a good group of blokes. So I really enjoyed that. 
the team manager came again and said, you're done. Um, so got sacked for the second time uh, in my career. Is it easier? Uh, is it easier the second time? I think it is actually, yeah. And I, I got to the end of it. So um, I um, finished my commerce degree and started working. You get a day off when you're playing the AFL system. So I started working with this fund manager called Lanyon Asset Management in Adelaide at the time on my day off. So I got to the end of my career and I was sort of at that point now where I'm like, I'm actually so excited and ready to move into my next career and knew that I'd given footy everything and so I was more than happy to move on. So it was a pretty easy transition, which I think a lot of players really struggle with these days. So I'm proud of that fact that I think we played in the SNFL granny and then two weeks later I was putting a suit on and walking into work. So, um, yeah, I now work as an analyst at Lanyon Asset Management. Um, we manage a little over $700 million and invest that in the stock market. Um, and I've actually been able to combine my two passions, which, um, you know, is investing and, and finding undervalued stocks, but also trying to help out um, athletes in particular. I've created the um, Lanyon Elite Athlete Fund, which is a fund specifically set up for past and present elite athletes. During my time in footy, I saw a lot of examples of, of footballers in particular getting to the end of their careers, earning good money and having nothing really to show for it. So now I'm trying to bridge that gap and um, provide an opportunity for, for players past and present to, to put some money to the side and invest in the stock market to hopefully have a, a nice sort of pool of capital at the end of their careers or, you know, at some time in their lives to access from a smart decision that they made earlier on in their career. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely loving life now and have, um, have nothing really to complain about. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, playing footy with my old schoolmates um, as a bit of fun in the amateurs in the job that I absolutely love and I'm passionate about still have that great support family network and my girlfriend around me and great mates. So life's pretty good, mate. Um, you know, it's uh, I've always been one to sort of look at the positives and with everything else that's going on in the world right now, I can't complain one bit. Nah, it sounds awesome. And I think, you know, that transition from professional uh, you know, being a professional athlete to the real life can probably not saying that I've experienced it, but I can just kind of envision that uh, you've got your career paths and, and for somebody potentially like yourself, whose career might've ended a little bit sooner, but it still went for a lot longer than the average AFL lifeline. But you think about players that, that drop out after sort of three, four years and, and might not know as you go into the system thinking, all right, this is this is me. I don't know if people do, but you might be able to sort of help me out with this. But you think that, all right, this is me for the next 10 years or this is what I'm set up to be. And then all of a sudden, you're at the end of your second year of your rookie contract and you're no longer uh, offered another contract and you're thinking, shit, like where to go from here? But I feel like hopefully clubs now over the years have now invested a bit of time and, and money and resources into educating players and being able to transition to life after footy because you're right you, you could be finishing your career at 21 you could be finishing your career at i mean look at burgoyne what's a 45 now <laughs> surely yeah. something like that you yeah. know like there's such a vast uh, range in ages but it's it would be such a big issue i would think and um and and the mental health side of it would play a big part of it too yeah and it's something that i'm really passionate about having got to the end of the, the other side now and um and living a life away from footy um as you said, a lot of players sort of 
they put all their eggs in one basket and think I'm going to make the most of this footy opportunity, which which is all well and good and great. But at the same time, I encourage all the time to have some form of balance in your life because, yeah, you never know. It, it just takes one injury. It just takes one coach not to really rate you as a player or um, for whatever reason, you're just offside and you go into a year thinking, gee, I'm going to sign a new contract here and be set up for the next four years. Suddenly you don't get that contract and it's actually over. Um, in some ways you're at the disadvantage because a lot of your mates that didn't get drafted, you know, went to uni, got a trade, whatever they did. And suddenly you're coming in as a, you know, 25 year old who's earned some pretty good money. Can't deny that but trying to start your next career from the start again. And, and a lot of people really struggle with that. So, you know, one of my big passions, as I've sort of said a few times now, is trying to bridge that gap and, and get people thinking that um, what am I going to do if this was to end tomorrow? Or, you know, even if I am the Sean Burgoyne and last till 45 or whatever he is, maybe 62, um, there's a whole other career that I have to live out after footy. And, you know, the really good ones set themselves up financially but even still you can't retire when you're you're 35 years old and do nothing for the rest of your life so there's always a career that you're going to have to do after your um, sport of choice finishes so the earlier you can discover and find out what that's going to be the better off you're going to be because then you can prepare your life around that so that when that day comes and hopefully you get the chance to retire on your own terms or if you get the tap on the shoulder you're more than ready to move on to the next phase of your life. And um, yeah, I think there is a lot of support networks and people trying to put in time and effort to, to make it better and make the process better. But um, you still see players going through different sort of forms of mental health and, and struggles in that, in that period of time. Got out five in a flash. So you've got to think first name that comes to your head, talking teammates with some of these. So five quick questions. First one, who is most likely to skip their shout in the round of beers? Probably Clayton Oliver. <laughs> He's pretty tight, Clary. He, uh, he lived in my house for a while as well and the rent didn't come through on the day every time, I don't think. During time, who would you most likely find in the gym? Probably Watsy. Um, he took a lot of time and effort in his pipes because as an 18-year-old, he was pretty skinny. So when he started getting a bit of size about him, he um, put in a lot of effort. Most annoying teammate you've ever had? Uh, James Frawley, I'd say. Who's had the worst haircut you've ever seen? Gee, oh, it's pretty hard not to go past Lyndon Dunn. Definitely, yeah, good for that. And last one, which was the better hanger? Your one on Scotty Selwood or Travis Boak? Ooh, I can't remember the Selwood one. I'll go with Travis Boak. That was up in Darwin, I think. Yeah, out on the wing there, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Good, yeah, get your legs into your back. Awesome. Yeah. All right, we've got a couple of fan questions to finish off. First one comes from Ellie Jade on Facebook. She said, if you could change one thing in your career, what would have that been and why? Oh, tough question. Um, <laughs> It'd probably be to be standing up there in September holding a premiership cap up as uh, the captain of the Melbourne Footy Club. If you could just change that, that'd be nice. Um, but honestly, I've said it a few times. I It's going to sound a bit, I don't know. I don't even know what to call it, but I wouldn't change a thing. Um, obviously, I would have loved to have had more success as a team. And, you know, I saw for so many years, Melbourne supporters go through you know, so much pain, um, which was really hard because I was the one out there that was in control of that pain at times. 
Um, the one thing that I really wanted to be able to achieve is to say that I, you know, bought home a, a premiership cup for the Melbourne faithful um, who have been through it all. So I guess that is the thing that I'd like to change. But at the same time, I wouldn't be sitting here today, the person I am, if I haven't hadn't been through all those experiences that I had. So wouldn't change a thing, but um, hopefully the days in the premiership this year. Next one we've got from Shane06 from Twitter said, when did you know that Scully was leaving? Uh, I honestly didn't know um, up until right at the end. Um, I think, you know, Scales is a pretty, uh, he held things pretty close to his chest. And I think the longer these days, especially, that somebody doesn't sign a contract, the more you think, well, if they really wanted to stay, they would have just signed. So um, I had my suspicions about halfway through the season, but um, I honestly thought that he'd stay and probably didn't know how much he was getting offered. And the last one we've got here is from Jack. Uh, it says, I've heard you were accused of being a thief at the pokies one night. Can you share about that? <laughs> a thief at the pokies. Um, I think that was a, a mad Monday and I was at the pokies with, I think, who was it? James Frawley and Dean Kent, maybe. Maybe even Fitzy as well. Maybe it's Jack Fitzpatrick. Let's put that question in. Yeah, <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> but no, no thief. No thief. All no thief. Yeah, fair enough. All right, mate. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been, yeah, a really interesting chat and, and awesome to get to know a bit more of your backstory. And uh, yeah, wish you all the best with everything post footy. But yeah, it's been really, really interesting to get to know yourself and um, been great to talk about the D's as always. But not necessarily uh, the most triumphant time of the Melbourne Footy Club, but it's it's re- it, no, but it's really interesting. And it's been speaking to a few players, it's been really interesting to hear your perspectives and and your side of the story and everything like that. And I only wish you all the best, yeah, with everything you're doing with work and family life and staying injury free. And it's great to hear that you're still running around and hopefully kicking a few snags and and uh, yeah, having that uh, having that pill on a string, mate. So thanks yeah. again. No, thanks very much for having me, Tim. Really appreciate it. I think um, the whole experience has probably, you know, brought back many great memories for me. It's not often you sort of sit back and reflect about, reflect on your career. And I think, you know, the thing that I walk away from and I'm proud to have walked away from the Melbourne Footy Club with, um, you know, the strong relationships that I have. Some of my best mates are still running around and um, I've got some really great mates, uh, past players at Melbourne. And whenever we get together, we reflect on what were pretty challenging times, but I think I was only saying this to my own partner the other day that I actually think I can't comment because we didn't win a grand final, but people talk about winning a grand final, their teammates going back to 10 year reunions and things like that. But I honestly think going through tough times is also um, brings the group even closer. So um, we've got this, you know, unique connection with a lot of those players that went through it at the same time and wherever we catch up, it's, um, you know, straight off from where you left off. And, um, yeah, it's just incredible to reflect back on some of those times. And, um, yeah, really appreciate you having me on and um, hoping all the best for the Ds this year. I only spoke to Gorney the other night. He's actually, um, I'm getting married at the end of the year and he's in my wedding party. So I said, it's in December, so I said the one thing you have to guarantee is you can bring the Premiership Cup along to it. So um, hopefully he holds up his end of the bargain and we'll all be happy. 
That sounds that sounds amazing. It's, oh, congratulations for for one. That's yeah, extremely exciting. And has that been planned for a while, or has that been impacted by COVID or anything? Or it has been. Yep. So we we're getting married. Um, my partner's family have a, a place over in the Mornington Peninsula, and we we're supposed to get married in March, but um, having ten people at the wedding didn't really cut it. So we decided to delay. Um, and yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed, it all goes through in December. But if not. It'll be what it'll be. Fantastic. Oh, all the best with that. And yeah, hopefully it all pans out for you. But uh, yeah, hopefully if you get to a game, we'll try and uh, catch up for a beer or something when you're here. Absolutely. Thanks, <laughs> awesome. Mate. All right. Thanks, Jack. Take care, mate. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Bye.